This morning we are continuing the, the first journey of the Lord Jesus Christ that is recorded for us in the book of John. We're looking at a series entitled The Journeys. This journey takes us right up to the end of chapter 4. And so we commenced the first journey in the middle of chapter 2. And today we are picking it up in chapter 4. And we're going to be reading from John's Gospel, chapter 4. And we'll be leaving, reading from verse number 3. But before we commence our reading, I just want to reflect on a very prominent position that I held in my life. I was 16 years of age at the time. And I was president of PIC at school. PIC, for those of you who have never heard of it, is Photography Interest Club. Pick. We had a grand total of eight members and an annual budget of five pounds. But the primary reason why I belonged to PIC and got myself elected as president was because I could determine who could get out of class to take photographs around the school. And I tended to nominate myself. But one of the other things that we did and regularly did as a photography club was do real photography. Not this nonsense of digitization and all that sort of nonsense and carry on. We had developers, big, bulky, massive things with bulbs in them and trays of uh, developer and stopper and all that sort of thing. And we developed our own black and white photographs. Now that is different to the photography of today, considerably. And I know today that if you're doing developing at home, by the way, I'm talking about negatives. Some of you will never have seen a negative, never mind an SLR camera. But if you're developing at home, you place a negative into this projector-like thing, and you would shine light through the negative onto a piece of developing paper. I know today you can get all sorts of developing paper. In those days, you got paper. And then you took this developing paper, you put it into a developer, you moved it around, and then you put it into stopper, and you hung it up, and you waited for it to finish its development. And the the reason I'm, I'm talking about this is because one of the key things, whenever you're coming to developing a black and white photograph, was to get the contrast right. If the contrast wasn't right, all you got was this grey mishmash. And as you expose that piece of paper to the light, and the amount of light that it received determined the contrast that became available. And what we are going to read today is a story of enormous contrast as they're exposed to the light. If you can recall, last week, whenever we were reading, we finished off with chapter 2. And when we were reading, or sorry, in chapter 3, and when we were reading in chapter 3, we talked about the light coming into the world. And we said that the light shines upon men. And we said there, and we read there, that the light shows up their deeds. Now, what was this light? The Lord Jesus Christ is referencing himself. He said, I am the light of the world later on. He shows up the the problems. And in this case that we look at in chapter 4, we have vivid contrasts which take place. 
But let's read the account first of all, and then we'll look at some of these contrasts in the time we have available. I will read chapter 4 and verse number 3. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now now Jacob's well was there, and Jesus therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, if you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep, where then do you go to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, and here is a major contrast I want to focus on this this morning. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into eternal or everlasting life. Jesus said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. The woman said to him, sir, Give me this water that I may not thirst, nor, nor, come, nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman said to him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have said well, for I have no husband. For you have five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke, spoke truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem nor will worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah's coming is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And, and Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no one said to him, What do you seek, or what are you talking with her about? And the woman left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the man, Come see a man who told me the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him. And verse number 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. 
and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Saviour of the world. It's a lengthy reading, and to many it is a very, very well-known story. And there's an awful lot in it. We could deal at it from so many different angles in this story. But I want to just focus on those verses that we talked about. That contrast in verse 13 and verse 14. But it is more than just that single contrast. From the very, very beginning, we realize the contrasts that are there when you compare it to what we looked at last week in chapter 3 and the story of Nicodemus. Let me just highlight some of the major differences between what we looked at last week contrasting to this week. First of all, Nicodemus came at night. This is six six hours into the day. This is midday, daylight. Nicodemus was a Jewish man. She was a Samaritan woman. Jewish male, Samaritan female. He was educated and very orthodox in the Jewish faith. She, probably uneducated and struggling within her faith. Nicodemus was an influential leader. She was, by this account, a nobody. Nicodemus was probably upper middle class, certainly a wealthy man. And as we read this, we realize that this woman is lower class. Nicodemus was morally upright, at least on the surface. He was a moral, upright individual. And as we look at this story, we'll realize that this woman is immoral. Nicodemus sought out Jesus. Jesus sought out the woman. Nicodemus responded very, very slowly, very rationally. This woman responds very quickly. And very, very emotionally. You can see the differences between the two stories. But we read that he needed to go through Samaria. Now, why is that important? Why did he need to go through Samaria? Whenever we looked last week, we talked about the incident in the temple. We talked about how the Lord Jesus Christ overturned the money changers and drove out the animals. And that happened in the court of the Gentiles. The very place that the Jewish faith was to reach out to other people. And here we have a completely different scenario. Here we have a Jewish faith which had been corrupted and twisted and it wasn't reaching out. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ now goes into Samaria. Now, I just want to draw a little parallel for you here. A couple of months ago, we looked at the book of Acts. And when we looked at the book of Acts, we looked at the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and into the whole world. And we have exactly the same picture here in chapter 4. The Lord Jesus Christ starts in Jerusalem, moves to Judea, then to Samaria. And by the end of our reading, he is the savior of the world. But what is the significance of Samaria? Well, 
if you think relations and politics are bad at the moment, no matter where you come from, we realize there are various problems. They are nothing compared to the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. Their relationship was horrendous. I could give you a 10, 15 minute account of why it had broken down, but simply to put it like this, they belonged to a kingdom, a northern kingdom, north of where we're talking about. It had been overcome, overtaken by the Assyrians. The Assyrians had put lots of people in there. They intermingled with the Jews who had been left there. They created a hybrid of faith, a hybrid of race. They, they lost their identity. There were so many things going on. They, they, they were engaged in idol worship. They actually decided to, to build their own temple. Not in Jerusalem, but at the foot of the mountain that this woman obviously references in her account. And things had gone from bad to worse because around about 100, 150 years prior to this, the Jews in Jerusalem had actually attacked Samaria and destroyed their very temple. So you couldn't talk about a worse relationships. It makes Brexit look simple whenever you talk about what is going on here. And yet the Lord Jesus Christ had to go into Samaria. And the word is really emphatic. He had to go. The Jewish faith was corrupt, was no longer welcoming people in. There was a breakdown in relationship, and he went into Samaria. Now, he could have gone up to his destination, Galilee, two routes. He could have skirted Samaria, and many, many of the Jews would have done that, especially the ones who are very, very religious. But they would have had absolutely nothing to do with the Samaritans. An upright Jew would never, ever, ever have drunk from a cup or a vessel that was provided to them by a Samaritan. It was contaminated. It was seen to be religiously filthy, dirty, and they wouldn't have touched it. And so here we have the Lord Jesus Christ moving up into an area that was despised by Nicodemus and the people in the temple. And there is the first major contrast. Jerusalem, Samaria. And whenever he got there, he was wearied, exhausted. A real picture of the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. He had walked around about 20 miles. It probably had taken a day and a half. It was blazing sunshine. He was weary. He was exhausted. Now, now contrast that with the picture that we had in chapter 2 last week of him clearing the temple. There's a whole sermon in that in itself. But contrast here, the humanity of Christ, he's absolutely exhausted, is the picture that is here. And he sat down at the side of this well, and his disciples went into the city to buy some food. Which shows that there was some interaction between the Jews and the Samaritans. But he sat down there, and he said to a woman, give me a drink. Give me a drink? You are a Jew, and you're asking me to give you a drink? Can you not get your own water out? What are you going to lift? What picture are you going to use? How are you going to get that? No, give me a drink out of your utensils. I've already told you how this would have been unreasonable. I've already told you how it would have been completely contrary to what was going on in the day. 
Give me a drink. There's more than that. It was the sixth hour. Now the sixth hour, if you've lived in the Far East or in the hot countries in the world, the sixth hour is the hottest part of the day. Many people at the sixth hour would rest and I would rest and stay in their home because of the blazing, beating sunshine. I remember once whenever we were traveling through Dakar in South Africa on our way back to the Northern Ireland by ship, we went out into the city at noon and we were the only people there. And mad dogs and Englishmen came rapidly to mind. They go out in the midday sun. And here was a woman who came in in the midday sun to collect water. This was unheard of. You came early in the morning or you came late in the evening because you're about half a mile from the town to come and you have to carry this water pitcher and you don't carry it in the middle of the sunshine. So why is she doing it then? I think if you read down through, you realize there's a problem in this woman's life. A big problem. She had five husbands. And her present partner is not her husband. This would have been frowned upon in those days, and even in in these days, five husbands inside a very short period of our life. Here she'd been married and remarried, and we don't know what had gone on. We don't know the reasons for divorce. We don't know what had broken down. But there was something in this woman's life. There was something terribly had gone wrong. And so therefore she was ostracized. Others would point the finger at her. Other people would say, look at that so-and-so. We don't know her name. Isn't that remarkable? We don't know her name. They would have pointed the finger at her. They said things about her. And so to overcome that, quietly, in the midday, she came to get water. And so the contrast is again. A man who had come to see Jesus, Nicodemus, a man who was a religious, pious man, and a woman whose life was collapsing, and a woman who was living a life of sin. Give me a drink. The woman actually says in exclamation, you're a Jew? And you're asking a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? The Jews have no dealings with the, with the Samaritan women. And then he says this, if you knew the gift of God, And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, one of the things about the Samaritans was that they only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament, the books which we call the Pentateuch. And whenever you would have said this to a a woman who believed in the five books of the Pentateuch, her mind would have readily gone back to an incident where Moses provided water, living water, for the people of Israel. And so her mind immediately goes, what? He's going to solve my problem. This practical problem that I have, this real problem I have, I have to come out here in the middle of the sunshine 
in the middle of the day to get water. And when I come to get water, I'm on my own. It's tiring. And he's going to provide me with flowing water. Now, here I am. Here's a solution. In this woman's mind, she'd won the lottery. This was it. Her problem was solved. Here it was, all over. He's going to give me some kind of flowing, living water. And the woman said to him, you have nothing to drink and to get water with the wells deep. And Jesus said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. As I read this story, I'm convinced that this woman's problem was that she could never, ever be satisfied. Never satisfied. And that's the story of all of, all of our lives. We, we look for more and more and more. And the more and more and more we get doesn't actually satisfy us. We, we, there's something else missing. I can remember, going back to my photograph days, the first camera I got. You're not going to believe this, but it had bellows on it. You opened the flap, and there were bellows came out in it. People don't know what I'm talking about now, I realize. But I was thrilled with that. And I was thrilled with that wonderful camera that could take black and white photographs until my friend came up one day and, and showed me his new camera, and I wanted that. And I saved up my money, and I got an SLR, Minolta SLR, SRT 101, and I bought it whenever I was 16, and I can remember buying it. I thought, I've done it. Now, as soon as I got that, I wanted a Nikon. And as soon as I got the Nikon, I wanted something else. And even today... People are in exactly that same situation. You get something, it's tangible, it satisfies, it's gone. Whether it's a car, a house, whatever it might be. And this woman has interpreted all of this here as a really practical, self-satisfying. The Lord Jesus Christ says, you're going to thirst again. You thirsty? You looking for something? You've tried absolutely everything. You've tried absolutely everything that this world can throw at you. You've tried alcohol, you've tried drugs, you've tried relationships, you've tried earning money, you've tried traveling, you've tried everything that it can get. Everything that comes. And yes, there's the buzz and there's the excitement and there's a meaning for a fraction of a second. And you think, there's a diner. And I need to improve on it. I need to get more. I need to get more. I need to get more. And this is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ is addressing here. Living water will not, will quench your thirst. And then in verse number 13 and 14, that wonderful contrast, that contrast of I'm trying to get physical satisfaction. And the Lord Jesus Christ contrasting that with what he is offering And he's saying, I'm telling you now, what I give you, you will never thirst. Never thirst. Now, obviously, he's not talking about physical water. Obviously not. So, obviously, what he's talking about here is something much, much more spiritual. 
And he says, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of life springing up into everlasting life. Now this verse in itself will take another session to unpack. But what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying, that I can give you, I can satisfy that spiritual yearning, that what you're looking for. And this water, whenever we look at it in the New Testament and throughout the Bible, is God, the Holy Spirit, coming to indwell a person's life. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, I can give you, I can give you satisfaction. The imagery that he used with Nicodemus was new birth. New birth. And here he's talking about new water, fresh water. And he's saying to him, you can receive this water. And what is it? It is everlasting life. Everlasting life. Eternal life. And as I said to you last week, and I repeat to you again, what we have here is not just something for the future, not just something for heaven, not just to get yourself a buy a ticket, do what you like, and whenever you get to the gates of heaven, you're let in. We're not demeaning it down to that there. This is something more profound. This actually addresses a very need that you have right now, that emptiness, that void. That desire, that bias, looking for something spiritual in your life, and you can't find it. You've tried everything. You've tried everything. And every time you try it, it's empty. And the Lord Jesus Christ says, I can give you eternal life. When you are born again, you receive the Holy Spirit into your life that moment you trust him. And the Holy Spirit is a picture of this water bubbling up and bringing forward eternal life. And then we have a conversation. And the conversation is a woman taking a detour. She, she, she talks about worship. And she talks about our temple and your temple and how we worship there and, and she starts to try to muddy the waters and it looks like the, she's the Lord Jesus Christ that has lost control of the conversation and by the way this is the longest dialogue that the Lord Jesus Christ has with anybody in scripture this whole dialogue it looks like he's lost control that she's starting to take him away off and, and haven't you had that scenario so many times you come along and you, you offer this living water and but what about the what about if what about that and before you know it you're away off on a tangent and, and discussing something totally unrelated and that looks like where this, this conversation is going but it's not because he brings her right back to true worship he says that God is spirit he doesn't dwell in a temple. He doesn't dwell in a building. God is spirit. And he's saying that the way back to God is through him. And that God is here present with each and every one of us today. We don't have to go to worship at a temple. We've got a lovely sanctuary downstairs, which we hope to be in next week. Hope to be. But that's nothing. That's irrelevant. But God isn't down there. God isn't sitting in some kind of an altar. 
God isn't something on the wall that I clap at three times a day. God is spirit. God is the creatorial power. He indwells all of this universe. And he is saying, no, we're not restricted to coming along to a nice building or a lovely room or engaging in some kind of religious activity. God is spirit. And he says, those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. You will have heard those words in John chapter 1. John's taking you right back. Taking you right back to the Lord Jesus Christ. But time is gone. And so at this point, the woman says, what are the disciples coming to say? Who are you talking to? Who are you engaging with? This is a Samaritan woman. You shouldn't be even engaging with her. And the woman left her water pot and went away into the city and said to the man, Come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? The Christ refers to the Messiah, the one that was promised in the Old Testament. She says, this man met me, told me all about my life. Is this man the Christ? And so what happened was that the man went out of the city and they came to him. And they sat and they listened to him and they talked with him and they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And as he engaged with them, and as he talked with them, and as he spoke to them, many came to believe in what he had to say. And then they said, we have known, we ourselves now know that this is indeed Christ, the Savior of the world. We know that this is a Christ the Savior of the world. For God so loved the world. This is not a message for Western civilization. This is not a message for Northern Ireland. This is not a message for people who dress and look like I do. This is a message for people across the whole of this globe. Michael mentioned my parents have been missionaries in Japan. Other people here have taken that message out across the world. But I want you to notice something in closing. That John is very, very careful in the incidents that he picks because he's writing this gospel with one purpose in mind. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's got those, that primary objective. He tells us that's why he's written it. And on three occasions, in these introductory passages we have read, he invites people to come and see. First of all, he says to Andrew and Peter, And he says to Andrew and Peter, the Lord Jesus Christ says to them, come and see. 
And Andrew and Peter in chapter 1 come and see the Lord Jesus Christ. And they say, we have found the Christ. We have found the Messiah. And then Nathaniel is challenged. And Nathaniel is challenged by Philip. And he's invited to, to come and see. And he comes and sees. And it says, we have found the Son of God. And then here in chapter 4. We find the woman says in verse 29, come and see. And when they come and see, they say, we have found the Christ, the Savior of the world. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the the Christ. Come and see. We have found the Christ. These things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Come and see. I found that Son of the living God. When these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Come and see. Believing you may have life. The Savior of the world. And so in this very four chapters, John has already laid out who Jesus Christ is. And the answer to this problem for this woman at the well was not religious process as to where you believe, where you go to worship, what you do. It wasn't even the significance of Jacob's well. It wasn't her problems. The answer to her problem was come and see a man who is the Christ, the Son of God, and the Savior of the world, and the one who can bring total and complete satisfaction. I don't know about you. Are you satisfied? Is there something missing in your life? You would just love to get to grips with it. You've tried all that this woman has tried. You've even tried the religious activities that she may have engaged in. You have tried absolutely everything you possibly can, and you're still empty. And if somebody came to you and said, I'm Offering you a new life, a new birth. But that new birth is sustained with a new life within you. The Holy Spirit indwells you like living water. And it brings about satisfaction. And it's life to the full right now and for all eternity. And so Jesus moves on. There's another incident at the end of the chapter. Take time to read it. We haven't time to talk about it. But he moves on into the the next journey. And so what is this journey? It's a contrast. It's a contrast between a religious system, which had gone wrong, and a contrast of one who's reaching out to the whole world. It's a contrast between a religious man who lost his way, And a contrast between a woman who was lost in her sin. It was a contrast between a man who came with all the intellect and the religious terminology of the day. And a contrast with a woman. The Lord says you don't even know what you're worshipping. It's a contrast between a man who is moral and a woman who is a sinner. And the Lord Jesus Christ goes from Jerusalem to Judea. Samaria to the whole world 
Which are you? Which are you? Where do you fit? This is a challenge. He can bring living, bubbling, fresh, cold, satisfying water into your dark, barren, dried, parched life. He is the answer, not a system. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. We know that Nicodemus came to faith later on. We don't know when. This woman was obviously impacted by what she had heard. And people came and they accepted and they believed. I was at university in Japan. The university in Japan had over 40,000 students. And I can vividly remember this incident occurring. I was the only Christian in that university. There was no CU. And I can remember standing in the foyer of this large university with a group of people around about. And some of them were international students and there were Japanese there and we were all standing around talking. And a number of these international students had come to Japan looking for all sorts of things and they tried everything. And I stood there and I listened. And I listened as they talked about how they tried drugs and what was a better drug. They talked about how they had tried Zen and how it hadn't satisfied. They talked about the relationships that they engaged in and how they were transitory. And this conversation went on and on and on. And they were all talking about what they could find next. And they were searching for something. And I was the only Christian student in that whole university. And I can remember struggling with my Christian faith in those days. It's not always easy being a Christian. Don't think it is. I can remember thinking, really, what am I? Where am I? Things were quite dark in my faith. And I can remember vividly standing in the middle of that group as they talked about trying to find satisfaction. Just thinking, you know what? What they're looking for, I've got. What they're looking for, I've got. And I can vividly remember that changing my life, changing my direction, satisfying a lot of the issues that were going on in my life at that moment in time. Because the satisfaction which comes from knowing God through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and eternal life is not just a ticket to heaven, but it's living water. Now, in a parched, dry land. I leave that with you. If you want to talk about what we have said here this morning, please do. But I challenge you. Look at the first journey. And you will see the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we come into your presence We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, our Father, that 
He is the Savior of the world. And Father, there are some here in this gathering this morning who are searching, who are looking for the answers. Father, help us not to get distracted by the peripheral issues. Help us not to get distracted and go off the, the main conversation, but to focus on the living water, the indwelling of your Holy Spirit into our newborn lives that can bring about a total and absolute satisfaction. We thank you, our Father, for your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your word and ask for your blessing upon us now as we part through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.